0: following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So this is week five of our six-week class on mindfulness of mind, and a lot of you know that we'll have the fourth of this series because we've been doing the four foundations of mindfulness starting with mindfulness of the body this last winter, mindfulness of feeling tone this spring, mindfulness of mind this summer, mindfulness of dhammas this fall. And it's the collection of the Buddhist teachings on the establishments of mindfulness. And in a way, mindfulness is this amazing, it's really our human superpower. I like to sometimes think of it as a universal solvent for all of the mental constructions. You know, we live in the world of mind, mental constructions, mental fabrications. All day long, all lifelong, maybe lifetime after lifetime, we've been fashioning our reality through these mental processes and then living within the oppressive, you know, structures that the mind has constructed. Right now, that's happening. And one of the reasons that the Buddha in this part of the the instructions on mindfulness of the mind where he is instructing us, you know, is the mind narrow or great? surpassed or unsurpassed, concentrated or not concentrated, released, liberated or not liberated. He just wants us, inviting us to get to know because when the when we experience the mind, not so much oppressed, contained, dependent, entangled with its constructions, but when the mind is more open, not dependent, peaceful, pure, pure of, you know, free from greed, free from aversion, then that mind, it's really, it's its sort of the great irony, it's that mind that realizes how oppressive our ordinary states of mind are. You know, it's a, you know, a lot of the Buddhist teachings, you know, where the Buddha might be talking about, how much dukkha, how much suffering there is. It's like people don't get it. Like, what do you mean? <laughs> I'm happy, but we, we shouldn't presume we know, like we have the appropriate instrument to know whether we're actually happy. <laughs> like, just because we don't think we're suffering, does that mean we're not suffering? Haven't we discovered sometimes, you know, where we're going about? And then things quiet down, you know, we're with a bunch of people and then they leave and, and then we realize, oh, I really hurt, you know. This heart, heart, this body, it's hard to be with. And then we want to do something again, you know, we want to gather around other people or get busy again because we want to be distracted from what it's like to be real, to be connected. So we go and search, how can I, you know, find some entanglement, basically. So this is the great power of mindfulness, because samadhi, the stability of present moment awareness, it naturally, uh, it has a sort of its own feedback mechanism, because there's a pleasure even in the beginning of just doing one thing. And if nothing else this week, these last two weeks of the class, where we're really emphasizing the second part of the Buddhist teachings on mindfulness of mind, I'll just read the, the sutta, uh, I think I read it early on in the course. but So this is uh, <clears throat> Analio's an, an translation, Bhikkhu Analio, this German Buddhist monk, so the first part, remember, was like noticing is it a mind with lust or without lust, with aversion or without aversion, delusion, without a delusion, too little energy, constricted with sleepiness and dullness, too much energy, restless and distracted. And then the second part of this instruction of mindfulness and mind is really about the development of the mind. The first part is just getting a sense of Skillful mind or unskillful mind, but then we could have a skillful mind, but that's not very developed. So what the development is really, the mind taking more. So now not much greed, not much aversion, not not much distraction, right? But it can still be relatively superficial or paying attention to relatively gross aspects of experience. So what helps the mind develop is that mind that is relatively free of the hindrances of greed, hatred and delusion, being sleepy, being restless with too much energy, then it's really, the development of the mind is all about what the mind pays attention to, basically paying attention to gross, less gross, subtle, more subtle, most subtle. And that really develops the mind. And when we do that, then that mind that has been fully developed, unsurpassable, concentrated, and liberated from selfing temporarily, or fully, that would be even better, right? (laughs) Not only have we you know, or is the mind currently free of its tendency to self, see things in a self-centered way? It's uh, uprooted the tendency to do that in the future, you know, the latent tendency to self, to selfing. But anyway, as we move to and experience more of those very simple, very pure, very still, very quiet places, Well, that kind of mind really sees things clearly, because that that the very nature of what the what uh, has developed is a mind that's not entangled. So then, (coughs) excuse me, that mind noted when the tendency to get entangled, to get dependent, to react, to want, to not want, that those habits really stand out you know how it is it's like some of you have been on longer retreats and the mind gets more stable more sensitive more pure and then we go back into our car we start driving on the highway or we go to the airport to fly home after the retreat and everything seems so loud and so sort of bright and like uh, a little too much (laughs) <laughs> there was one time just driving home with two of my friends from a retreat in the, in the probably early '90s. and uh, And just uh, this one person in particular was just a big talker, and you know, after retreats, it's sort of the spigots wide open, and someone who hasn't talked for nine days just and there, just in a you know, relatively small call car, I really felt like I was going to die. Like, and it wasn't that the person was being unwholesome, they were just talking about their retreat. And I was in the back seat, the person was in the front seat. But it just, just the social energy, because my mind had been quiet and pure, and just the grossness, not the unskillfulness so much as just the gross level of activity, it's like, uh, this is sort of just the funny part of maybe we could call it the folk religious side of Buddhism, but you know they have these ideas of realms of existence, grosser realms like even hell realms, hungry ghost realms, animal realm, human realm, sort of the lower angelic ra- realms, you know, celestial beings, all the way up to the most pure, even realms like of pure love, where you don't even have an energy body. You know, the angels like have bodies, but it's like bodies of energy or light. But there are even realms of formless realms. So you don't even have any sort of body at all. Just light. And, and then the more refined levels, you know, they're really talking about our mind now. These are just metaphors or myths or whatever you want to call it to help us understand our mind now because it's true right now like has anybody not been in a hell realm has anybody not been a hungry ghost you know where you can't satisfy your hunger for whatever your lust has anybody been in an animal realm where you're just all about survival or a human realm human realm in this kind of metaphor is really when uh, you have some moral sensitivity like, what, when you're an animal, you don't have moral sensitivity. If you need to eat that to survive, you're going to eat that to survive, right? Um, but with a human, we might have some moral sensitivity, like, should I eat that? I really need food, but do I want to kill that living being, is that right? right? And it, it touches our heart. Whatever we do, it touches our heart, if, we have, if we're an actual human being, according to this metaphor. And then sometimes we're in an angelic realm, you know? We only wear nice clothes. We only shop at the co-op where the food is wonderful, if we can afford it. You know, we have really nice music with a nice stereo system and on and on, really. And then it's like if someone gave us a pair of clothes that weren't nicely made, it would be, oh, way too gross. Or food that was sort of, you know, just not special, not. It's oh no, I don't drink that. You know, like we are with coffee. I don't drink coffee, but I I really like good green tea, sencha, you know, the, or even more refined. Generally, the more expensive, the better. And it's like I, it's hard for me. Like I, green tea in a tea bag. There's just a few that I can tolerate you know, and I'll just, like, I'll go without, even though I need green tea, like, we were at Prairie Farm, Common Ground's retreat property this weekend, and I forgot to bring my own green tea out, and uh, luckily there was one tea bag there that was tolerable, (laughs) and it's because in that part of my life, the green tea part of my life, I'm in a deva realm, deva is sort of the Pali word for celestial being, it's like nothing gross, nothing harsh, just things that are very refined. That's all I care about. And even more and more like sometimes when we're doing the loving-kindness practice and we're having a so-called good set and we really become the loving-kindness. We're not the meditator trying to generate loving-kindness. We're really, in a sense, resting, abiding, and being that love. And it really, there's no sense of body or this mind shine. It's just love being love. And for those moments, there's not a perception of body or of a me meditating on loving kindness, or even who the loving kindness is going to, because it's a boundless, Radiation, it's out everywhere in all directions, in all ways. As that chant we do in the morning and on retreat, I will abide pervading the all-encompassing world. So this is like an example, even before deep states of absorption, concentration, this is really a good way to understand the difference between a narrow mind and a great mind, this... Just sensing that generosity, that openness of the mind and heart. Because we can have that in any moment. We can see a puppy and go from a narrow state to an open state. Or two children playing in a friendly way. And the heart could just, oh, this is not a narrow mind, this is a great mind. Oh, okay, I get it. And it's useful to recognize all day long when the mind goes from narrow to great. And if you don't like that word, uh, another way... How did another teacher translate that word? Oh, enlarged. <laughs> it's sort of funny. I was talking about a friend who was a really serious runner when they were young, and they have an enlarged heart. So now that word has sort of a funny meaning, like, that's not good. But an enlarged heart versus... A tight or narrow heart, limited heart. And just to get that sense. And then that second category, surpassable or unsurpassable. Because it really affects, like if it's surpassable, then it's appropriate for the mind to be curious. Like, yeah, this might be a really beautiful, wholesome, pleasant state of mind, quality of mind, but it's still surpassable because wisdom would be naturally interested, how can this beautiful mind become more beautiful? How can this relatively pure mind become even more refined, more still, more clear, more boundless, more open? But that's what that means. It's like realizing that question, surpassable or unsurpassable, we we don't want because one of the, I don't know if it's a problem, but yeah, I guess it, it's a problem in the sense that it can get in the way of development is, excuse me, to become content with a relatively nice sit, <laughs> you know, to be in a relatively nice place. Because it really seems like, given what's coming at me in my life, I can really handle it. So why, I guess I'm done being a spiritual practitioner. I'm done being interested in what my spiritual teachers and my spiritual tradition says is possible because I can really handle my life. We, I see this a lot, you know, my role as a Dharma teacher here at Common Ground and other places. Um, people come in to the practice they can have a lot of enthusiasm because they're really hurting. Life is really hard to bear, whatever's going on in their life, and they need more resources, inner resources. And so they apply themselves because they're motivated, because in a way they're drowning with the circumstances of their life, whatever they might be. And so they're motivated, they apply themselves, they learn a thing or two, and, of course, circumstances change as well. And then, that, why do I need to go to common ground? I'm feeling pretty good. And, or that problem that was obsessing or prob, uh, difficult for me is not there anymore. So this question of surpassable, unsurpassable is, I don't want to just get in a nice place. I'm really interested because the Buddha says, and... Some of my teachers say that there are, there's an understanding, there's a development that is protecting not only of what's happening now, but protecting no matter any conditions that might show up. Like, am I ready to be on my deathbed? Or am I ready to lose those things, those people that are most important in my life? am i ready for pain extreme pain am i ready to see the truth of the way it is because if the answer is no not really then well then we're curious about well this mind is still surpassable let me let me allow the natural process because the development of the mind like the kind of effort we make to to, to develop the mind It's not so much we're trying to bend the mind to our will, like, I want this mind to become more pure, more clear. It's more the effort is to align with the natural process of development. And that natural process is to be interested in the inner pleasure of seclusion and tranquility and joy and ease, and the peacefulness of dispassion and the quiet, the quieting of the mind, the thinking mind and that sense of space of the mind and that sense of purity and stillness and silence and emptiness of self and realizing the mind that isn't selfing. And because it's not selfing, it's not dependent on anything. So it's a, a real taste of Nibbāna or liberation, because the mind is realizing the mind free of any craving. And if any latent tendency to like want to hold on to the nice experience, that would defile the purity of that mind. And it would be seen instantly as not needed, not helpful. I mean, one of the things we hear, like I'm sure many of you have heard just in the discussions we have when there's Q&A time, is people will share a time when their minds settle down and then naturally what arose is some egoic excitement, oh my God, my mind has settled down or oh my God, this feels so good and then they, and then the mind, that identification with the inner pleasure and stillness and peacefulness, the identification ruins the concentration or the subtleness. And then there's like a sense of betrayal, like, oh my God, I was so close, or I was there, you know, feeling the kind of healing I took birth for, (laughs) and then it went away, and then I was twisted steel trying to get back to that nice place. And it can almost feel like it isn't fair. Someone's messing with us, you know, taunting us with a nice experience. But, but fortunately we have these teachings that tell us over and over again that things are lawful. And we can really rely on that karma, right? That the lawfulness, the conditionality. So in terms of developing the mind, you know, these four, I guess, Questions narrow or great mind, unsurpassable or surpassable, concentrated, still or not yet concentrated and still. Empty of self, liberated, still some selfing. It's not yet liberated. right It's just it's supporting the natural process, because nature itself, not you, not me as the meditator, but nature itself, if it's sensitive to these questions, it wants to move from grossness to subtlety, to purity. But it has to be sensitive to the right thing. And the right thing to be sensitive to is that thread of pleasure, inner pleasure. And this is different than worldly pleasure, the pleasure of having what we want. It's really related to the pleasure, the joy of renunciation, of letting go, or the pleasure, you could say, of independence or non-dependence. The mind, the heart, not dependent on sense experience. See, it's, a, it's like a whole different category of pleasure. There is the pleasure we know quite well, which is real but limited. It's the pleasure of the mind being connected with a worldly sense experience that's pleasurable. Eating the food we like to eat is pleasant. It's limited because it lasts for a while and then it kind of peaks, you know, and then it's with each additional bite of that food or each additional minute of the entertainment we're watching, or each, you know, whatever kind of sense pleasure, even a massage, even a massage from the best person who, you know, just knows just the right things to do. At some point, we want them to stop. <laughs> One thing, you know, because I, I take, a, I do a deep relaxation at least once a day, every day. It's really, it would be an unusual day but I wouldn't do that, and I've been doing that for since the early 80s, so a long time now. And I really like it, but it's so interesting, there's a, there's a moment, you know, where I'm lying down, and initially, because I do it right in the middle of the afternoon, and usually a busy day, so it always feels good to lie down, and like, that I've given myself permission to put everything down for 15 to, you know, usually not much more than 20 minutes. Um, It's just like, it's such a nice gift to give ourselves. I highly recommend if you can somehow afford to give yourself that time. And, uh, you know, and so it feels good initially. But at some point, it's like my mind and body is done. It's like not that pleasant anymore. And I'll catch, like, trying to make it pleasant. You know, I'm sure you've I mean, we see this a lot when... We don't have to get up and go to work, and we want to stay in bed, but at some point it's like the benefits are getting less and less, and it, all of a sudden it starts to hurt, but we still, were, we're clinging to the pleasure we were getting a couple hours ago, right? But it's not there anymore. So even something like a good sleep runs its course, and it's true with every experience every worldly experience, except these inner experiences, right? It's like they don't run out. It's not, you know, initially it's very earth-shaking, you know, when we uh, first experience some of the pleasure, the inner pleasure of concentration or simplicity, the mind. In a way, the mind, which usually has this outward orientation towards sense experience, it withdraws from what it's hearing, from what it's smelling and tasting, from what it's sensing at the skin and seeing with the eyes. It withdraws its interest and it's interested in the space or the nature of the mind and then the affective feeling of that is not being pushed around by my likes and dislikes of sense experience. So that's what the pleasure is. It isn't so much that it's something as much as it is the absence of the agitation of being in the, attending to the sense world with all my likes and dislikes liking something is stressful. Not liking something is stressful. Ignoring all the stuff that's neutral turns out to be stressful. But we're just too dull to notice how oppressive it is for this sensitive apparatus called me to be inundated, ceaselessly inundated, by sense contact. Each sense contact, the mind has to register it and has to assign a feeling tone liking because it's pleasant, not liking because it's unpleasant, ignoring because it's neutral. It's very agitating. So when the mind withdraws its interest from the sense gates, the physical sense gates, including the gross level of thought that is about sense experience, it just chooses not to attend to that. That's, see, now we understand like, why we might have an exclusive meditation object like feeling the body sitting or feeling the touching at the nostrils as the air goes in and out or feeling the rising of the belly and the falling of the belly. Because when I'm really wholeheartedly, clearly aware of the meditation object, I'm turning my attention away from all the other sense experiences and my thoughts about sense experience because I'm attending to this one thing. And then, because I have a lot of simplicity, then I'm already close, that feeling of seclusion, of non-dependence, starts to show up if if we've been instructed to be on the lookout for it. That's really like one of the priceless things from our lineage, from the Buddha, is he tells us, hey folks, There's an actual resonant pleasure It's available but you're not going to notice it because through culture, through our genetics, we're very interested in sense experience and our thoughts about sense experience that we haven't noticed the pleasure of seclusion. And uh, some of you know this but he gives this very poignant example where as he when he was really in the thick of his own spiritual practice and development, but before he had woken up, had his deep insight, um, this memory of being a young boy came back to the Buddha to be when he was still bodhisattva, Bodhisattva, someone on the way, um, and he remembered just a natural time when he was, you know it's hard to say, but maybe about five or four years of age, and it was some festival day and he was just sort of in a nice place under a rose apple tree, and his mind just slipped into this secluded place, sort of turning in on itself, and the pleasure of that non-dependence on sense experience, the pleasure of being um, collected, unified, the heart-mind unified. And and the thought occurred to him, now 35 years of age, in the thick of his practice, doing a lot of ascetic practices and finding them to be somewhat of a dead end, not really going anywhere. And then the thought occurred to him, do I need to be afraid of that kind of pleasure? And then wisdom in his mind just naturally answered, no, you don't have to be afraid of that kind of pleasure. That is a very useful pleasure. On all kinds of levels, so that development of mind, great, unsurpassable, concentrated, liberated, right? So just getting fluent with this development, because it weans our heart off of its addiction to sense experience. Thinking sense experience is more than what it is. It's not that the pleasure we get from sex or food or whatever isn't something, it just ultimately doesn't lead anywhere useful to some kind of resonant satisfaction or safety. It just leaves us hungry, hungry, hungry forever. And should I mean, we should know this, but we're so busy feeding ourselves on sense experience that it's a relatively, in the great scheme of things on the planet, it's a relatively rare insight to really get, in a deeper way, the rat race of pursuing sense experience. And even, you know, I consider myself a sincere practitioner, but I still I can still get seduced that having the perfect cabin is going to matter, you know, or being retired with no responsibilities, oh yeah. (laughs) Or whatever we might think, you know, getting into shape, that's another one, like, God, if I just did an hour, I used to back in the 80s uh, for a while, You know, there were, there were years where I was doing two, two and a half, just of hatha yoga, let alone a couple hours of sitting and then some chant. I mean, I was doing a lot of spiritual practice for a while and it just felt, my body felt so, I mean, partly I was young then, (laughs) that helps, but I just felt great, you know, my mind felt great and, and now it's like, you know, it's not the same and, uh, So we we can, even with our spiritual practice, we can be clinging and thinking, oh yeah. But it's really this, like there's really nothing in the way of us being interested, great or narrow. Still capable of surpassing, developing? Oh no, fully developed. Am I sure? Maybe there's more purity available. How still, how empty. And then realizing this is a mind empty of selfing, free of selfing, liberated from that very chronic habit of, of projecting as somebody who is still or somebody who is pure, right? Because even that defiles the peaceful mind, the space of the mind, just the sense of somebody who owns this. Who has this, or even who is this, is an unnecessary contraction. So it's really that that's the sort of ultimate purity, is the mind realizing the mind free of any location that's being projected onto it. Like somebody, whether it's somebody who owns this quiet mind or somebody who is this, doesn't matter, like how that is framed, it's unneeded and a defilement, as as we might say. One knows a mind that has become great to be a mind that has become great, or one knows a mind that has not become great as a mind that has not become great. One knows a surpassable mind to be a surpassable mind one knows an unsurpassable mind to be an unsurpassable mind. One knows a concentrated mind to be a concentrated mind. One knows a not concentrated mind to be a not concentrated mind. Or one knows a liberated mind to be a liberated mind. Or one knows a not liberated mind to be a not liberated mind. Now, this is, it may seem simplistic, but these words I think are really carefully chosen. Because the Buddha doesn't tell us you're at A, and you get to, you need to get to Z, you know, and you got to climb that mountain. You've got a dense mind, and you got to go through the thicket with your machete and get to the top of the mountain where you have a pure mind. What do you, th- that at this stage? Because remember, we're already at a stage where we've been good at. Mind with lust, a mind without lust, a mind with aversion, a mind right. So we, we're already pretty familiar with what's wholesome and unwholesome in the mind. There's already quite a bit of skill. So here, what activates the natural feedback? Because awakening or just the this uh, development of samadhi, it is a natural process, and the natural process depends on a sensitivity to the mind being relatively undeveloped, to the mind being relatively developed. It's the capacity to use the mind, to be aware of the mind, and to recognize its development. So it's just like a more sophisticated way of when we say, how's the mind doing? Now we have this sort of vocabulary to actually be with the mind because we're interested, how's the mind doing, right? So now like even that language, great or narrow, you see it, it helps us see the mind, experience the mind. Does that make sense? So the frame, even if now initially it's just kind of a conceptual frame, but the more you use the frame, then the frame is going to get integrated with your actual experience of the mind, knowing the mind. You see, you so that's the key. If it just if we just leave it as another conceptual map, it's like it's not worth much, if anything. We got to use this map: great, narrow, surpassable, unsurpassable, concentrated, not concentrated, liberated, not liberated. And integrate the concept or use the concepts to get to know the mind, the actual experience of the mind. And that's what builds the natural process of the mind developing. It needs this internal interest and sensitivity to its own development. If the mind is unaware of development, the mind doesn't develop. So in a way it's like a great gift to have had this interest, have had stumbled upon these teachings. Oh. And it's a kind of privileged, you know, state that human beings aren't so overwhelmed by basic survival that they can actually be interested in the mind, the heart, the space of the mind and heart. But it's that kind of, it's not just great because then we're gonna, you know, have an exalted experience for an hour or whatever, but the kind of clarity and sensitivity that then we, people walk around with, those people see what needs to be seen, you know, like the underlying roots of suffering. They can be really useful parents and leaders and friends and colleagues. Even if they never say anything. But, you know, have you noticed this like when you're with a good friend and you're in a relaxed and sensitive and non-judgy place and they're kind of acting out their conditioning and you see it vividly because you're in that balanced non-judging loving place you're not judging them but you see everything clearly you see what's not helpful in their behavior you see their delusion you don't say hey you're deluded you don't have to really because your clarity and your non-judgment but but basically your heart is reading cause and effect oh when my friend is relating like this, then this gets set in motion, right? That's in the air, kind of, you know, in the social vibration of you two together. So it doesn't mean that they're gonna just get it, but it's one, it's a real gift. It increases uh, the odds of them seeing what they're not seeing. The more sensitive, non-judging, but sensitive, clearly awake, clearly aware people who see causes and conditions, the roots of suffering, the greater the healing collectively. The more nobody, the more everybody's oblivious to what's not being seen in our communities, the more these patterns of suffering, Just repeat. You know how it is? Like this is what makes a saint a saint or a really powerful leader powerful is that they can, in a way, uh, point to the truth that nobody has been acknowledging. And then all of a sudden, because of that person's clarity and integrity, other people can see it. We're, We're like that. We learn from each other, and there's just a article, I don't know, I think it was maybe New Zealand or Australia, and there's a parrot called Trash Parrots, I don't know if anybody saw the article. And uh, But they found that these, the parrots are kind of a smart animal, and uh, there's like a four or five step process for a parrot to be able to open a garbage can. You know, because they got to get one position, they got to do this thing, and then they got to hold it. and and uh, But they found that once a few learned it, then all of a sudden it spread. And it's the same thing. There are these, uh, there's even, you know, kind of a pseudo science. I don't know how, you know, because it can't be measured exactly. But it's really the science of morphic fields that I think it really. It's like, it would be so much easier for us to do this practice if we hung out with a fully awakened being. But short of that, we should hang out with Dharma friends who are at least as sincere and interested as we are, as best we can. And then the Buddha says, you know, basically, I, you know, I'm paraphrasing what the Buddha said, and then he says, but if you can't find any of those friends and all your only options are people who are pretty deluded better to go at it alone, you know, (laughs) head to the hills, because we're affected by who we're around. No, sometimes we have karmic obligations, and we don't have any choice. We're going to take care of our parent, even if, you know, they're sort of a really suffering and unhappy human being, and they're basically thrashing around in their life, just getting by. But we have to keep showing, but we can do whatever we can. And these days in our information age, we have other means to be around wise friends. We're so fortunate <clears throat> that we have the internet. You know, it's got, as like somebody said once, it's like really great for pornography and really great for wisdom. And it's true. I mean, it, this pornography sort of represents all of our gross uh, you know, sense desires. And wisdom represents, like, the possibility of not being so entangled with our gross sense desires. So next week we'll have small groups, and I really encourage people to take time this week, whatever you can put in, and and really be on the lookout for some kind of language. Oh yeah, I'm somebody who has a bad sitting practice. Oh, I don't really get concentrated. I don't <clears throat> Excuse me. know anything about a developed mind, <clears throat> a still mind. I'm just one of those bad meditators. You know, because this is sort of chronic. Forget that. Just be interested. Wherever we are, the mind can be developed. And this development is natural. It has a natural feedback mechanism. The natural feedback mechanism is being interested in the development of the mind and having some vocabulary, some way to sense, to understand its development, narrow or great, unsurpassable, surpassable, concentrated, not concentrated, liberated or not liberated. But don't worry so much about even that you can find your own inner sense pure or not so pure, gross or subtle, generous or tight, expansive or not expansive. It just kind of and just even using that first one, narrow or great, expansive. And just keep that in mind. Just stay interested in that while you're sitting and throughout the day. And then in the small group and in the large group, we'll talk, I'll talk more, but share in your small group about what you learned, because that will be mutually supportive about our own interest. And this is not just for our own well-being, but really a way to take care of everyone we love. There is no gift better to give to our spouses, our friends, our children, our colleagues at work than to reside more and more often in beautiful states of mind. Otherwise, all we're doing is like somebody's suffering is activating our suffering and then we suffer and activate somebody else's suffering and on and on it goes and this is what we mean by samsara, the cycles of suffering. So thanks for being here everybody, all those of you in the Zoom group and everybody here online. I'll just mention briefly about Donna or generosity. I think most of you know, I did paste it in the Zoom chat, um, but Common Ground, since the very beginning, we operate in this circle of freely giving and freely receiving. And actually the first step is just to please receive the class as a free gift, whether you're online or here, or a combination coming sometimes and being online other times, or listening later, on our YouTube channel, from our YouTube channel. So I just receive these teachings um, as a free gift. And I don't expect that to be easy. It's not easy for me, for sure. And then naturally, as you feel inspired to give back, then volunteer, contribute money. And that's what we use to support our teachers and have this building and develop the retreat property that we've been developing. We're right in the middle of buying some land around the retreat property to protect it and to preserve the wildness of the land and all of that happens because of the generosity and just this beautiful circle and Kamdarn has always operated in this way where we don't talk about money much we don't do fundraising in any sort of normal way because we really want people to find their own way and the way we find our own way we We relate to the center and the community in a way that makes us happy. So we learn to receive in a way that makes us happy, and we learn to give in a way that makes us happy. And it really works out. I mean, the center, the last few years, it's been about $400,000 a year just gets spent and comes in. And it's just a little like magic to me that it happens this way, but it really depends on everybody. Finding your own relationship that leaves a good taste in your heart, that's the key. And so you have to experiment a little bit, like, what actually feels good for me, given my situation and everything else that's moving in my life. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website